Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend part of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. And today, I am talking with Gary Thomas, and if you're not familiar with Gary, he has written, I mean, so many different books. Uh, he's literally written over over 20 books and uh, has sold, I think, over 2 million copies of those books as well. And so today I'm talking with him and we're going to have a wide ranging conversation. But before we get into that, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I want to tell you a little bit about us. You know, here in the Learner's Corner, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. Because if you're like me, you know, you can't have certain conversations with anyone or everyone because, well, the person is just not safe to have those conversations with. You're either going to, you're either afraid, hey, if I bring this thing up, it might harm our relationship, or maybe you're afraid of being judged or shamed. Or you're, like I said, you just don't feel like you have anyone that you can talk with these things about. And so even though you may not have anyone, hopefully you can listen in on uh, the podcast and, you know, at least be challenged a little bit through that or even be uh, pressed to think and learn and grow through that as well. And so this is a podcast for lifelong learners and kind of one of our, our mantras or one of our big things or one of our big beliefs here is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and everyone, anything and everything, regardless of uh, regardless of who the person is or what their background may be or maybe even what they believe. And we believe that we can talk about anything and that we can learn about literally any single topic as well. So as I mentioned earlier, today I am talking with Gary Thomas, and I'm super excited to bring that conversation to you because he has written uh, one of my favorite books on relationships, and it's called uh, The Sacred Search. And we're going to maybe get into that a little bit, but we're going to talk with him about uh, his book that is being re-released called The Glorious Pursuit. And he's actually got a ton of books that are being uh, re-released here in just a moment, or not just a moment, they're kind of being re-released all throughout right now. But before I get into that, I do want to give a Learner's Corner recommended resource of the weekend, lots of stuff uh, from Gary would fall into that list, but I kind of want to give you a, a different thing that I'm thinking about right now. And the 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 resource that I want to recommend is a podcast that I've listened to recently, and specifically an episode. Um, I like recommending the certain episodes towards it, um, just because sometimes we're recommending a whole podcast that's a lot to listen to. But I do want to give you one specific one that has impacted me recently on the Dare to Lead podcast, which is a podcast from Brene Brown, who's one of my favorite people to learn from. And it's on, or the the episode is with her conversation on with Simon Sinek, uh, and it's and the episode is called uh, Brene with Simon Sinek on developing an infinite mindset. And I want to read to you uh, just a portion of the episode that really stood out to me. You know, and kind of the context of the conversation is they're they're talking about you know the the pressure that sometimes we can feel to um to you know go further and faster and bigger uh, and more more and more and feeling that pressure. And so here's what Brene says. She says that someone wanted to invest uh, in their company and wanted to help them grow further faster and she said here was my response. She said that she uh, wrote everything down that she was talking about those people with and that her and her husband you know, they they write down a joy list, which I find uh, intriguing as well. And she said, as they were looking through the list and they started evaluating uh, them as a couple, as a family, and then as individuals and looking at the joy on the list, and she compared it to the words further and faster. And her response is so striking to me and encouraging and challenging. She says, she called the next day and said, you know, I'm so grateful. I really appreciate it. I'm a slower, closer kind of person. And she says that the people on the other end of the phone were bewildered. And their response was, we saw, we just saw a lot of ambition in you. And she said, 
I am super ambitious, but I'm ambitious for something that's slower and closer. I'm ambitious about the number of field hockey games I make for my daughter and the number of water polo games and dinners. And so I can say that the infinite mindset is tough when you're sitting at a boardroom with people playing a finite mindset. You really cannot lose sight of yourself. And I think the thing that is both encouraging and challenging to me is that I think it's natural for us to pick the the further, faster, the more, the growth, all of that stuff. And for me, being a follower of Jesus, I think, I can't help but think of the line that Jesus says. And he says, what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? And I think sometimes in the pursuit of more, in the pursuit of growth, in the pursuit of further and faster, we could sacrifice some of the things that are most important to us the things that require us to be slower and closer with the people that we love, with the things that bring us joy, with the things that give us life, because they're not on the path of slower and faster. They are on the path of slower. They aren't necessarily on the path of faster. And so that's one of the things that has been challenging me lately is just thinking about that quote, thinking about the conversation. The whole conversation is filled with gold. And so the link to that episode will be in the show notes. And I highly recommend that you go and check that out. But as I mentioned, we have, uh, before you go and check out that podcast, we have a great episode for you today. Today, as I mentioned, I'm talking with Gary Thomas and Gary is a best-selling author and international speaker whose ministry brings people closer to Christ and closer to others. He unites the study of scripture, church history, and the Christian classics to foster spiritual growth and deeper relationships within Christian community. He is the author of over, or author of 20 books that together have sold over 2 million copies. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Gary Thomas. Well, Gary, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Caleb. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, one of the things um, that just as I was preparing for our conversation and, you know, looking on your website and obviously reading through so many of your books is that uh, you are a huge promoter of some of the Christian classics. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you is what are some of the Christian classics that you've read that have have shaped you the most and how have they shaped you? Yeah. Well, when people ask me that, it's one of the most difficult questions (laughs) to answer. It's impossible because it's often dependent on which one I'm reading right now. Yeah. Uh, My very first book, it was called Seeking the Face of God when it came out. Now it's called Thirsting for God, is basically just a collection of the themes of the Christian classics. Um, I thought before I started to write my own books, I wanted to get a feel for the best of Christian spirituality. And I found that when you talk about Christian classics and some of your listeners are saying, what's a Christian classic? Books today have a shelf life somewhere between yogurt and milk. (laughs) So when a book has been around for not just centuries, but over a thousand years, in some cases, going back to Ambrose and others and Augustine, it, it, there's just a staying power where the church is recognized. These books have something special to say. And so I, I would put Ambrose there at the top of that. Uh, William Law, an 18th century Anglican, is a favorite. Francis de Sales, Johann Toller, John, John Climacus, he wrote for the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Thomas Akempis. Uh, there's so many more. I hate to do lists because yeah. I, I feel like I'm giving people out. But But here's the thing. Caleb, it hit me so much. Even when I was in my early 20s, I started reading these because I found when you, and, and I'm not I'm not trying to be critical here, yeah. but when I would look left and right, I didn't see this passionate affection for Christ and his cause. I would go into the classics. I thought, okay, there's somebody thirsting after God. There's somebody willing to lay everything out for God, whether it was men, whether it was women in different traditions. And in issues of systematic theology, a lot of them disagree with each other. But on the main issues of how you love God, the seasons of the soul, what it means to know God, the difficulties of a life with God, it was amazing to me how much 
they had in common. And so um, I've I've never stopped. Um, I've been reading through the classics for uh, decades now, longer than most of your listeners have been alive. <laughs> what What's the one that you're reading right now, and what is what is speaking to you most about it? Uh, well, I'm actually reading Augustine's On the Trinity. Hmm. It's a little more theologically based early on, trying to prove the Trinity from. I don't mean to say trying to prove, demonstrating yeah. the Trinity yeah. through through Scripture. Um, I just finished Ambrose before him, so I've been going a little bit. Uh, earlier, but before that, I had read um, Henry Drummond, The Greatest Challenge in the World. It was a great book. He had such a, a powerful ministry. He was a contemporary of, of D.L. Moody, a famous evangelist that Moody Bible Institute was named after, um, and was very popular with the college cr- campus crowd of his day. Uh, so I, I, I try to go back and forth from one century to the next, but I've just found that reading when I was at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, I had a, a great professor who encouraged us to read, for instance, Teresa of Avila. And we'd say, why would we read that? And he goes, well, number one, she lived in a different century than you did. She lived in a different continent than you did. She's Roman Catholic. Most of you are Protestant at that time. She's in a different stage of life than you were. She's single. A lot of you are married. He goes, she'll think to ask questions that wouldn't even occur to you. And and for me, that's what lifted him out of my. That's what helped lift me out of my cultural and generational blinders. You, you mentioned with the first question some of the lessons I've learned. I think one of the things that was a big takeaway for me with the Christian classics was the obsession with humility, and I'm using obsession in a positive way. Yeah. To the classics, pride was the sin, and humility was the queen of virtues. And when I was growing up, the only real sin was sexually related, right? If, if you weren't misbehaving sexually, you were pretty good, right? If, if you were even involved in substance abuse, well, they're self-medicating or whatnot. And the classics realized the, the, the harm of pride, the devastation of pride. And I think if we could go back and learn from them, we'll have a much healthier view of sin, that it's not just about sex. There are a whole lot of attitudes that set us up to fail, not just sexually, but with our finances, with power and relationships um, in so many other ways. And, and I would say the second major difference for me, besides the pride and humility thing, is that today's Christians, at least the Christians I grew up with, are obsessed about salvation. Have you been saved? Are you on the right side? And the classics seem focused on holiness. And it just creates a different kind of teaching, a different exhortation, because it's not enough that you've got your card punched and you're on your way to heaven, but are you reflecting the character of Christ? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm, I want to ask that you, you mentioned that reading through the classics, it's helped you, uh, you know, move beyond your, your generational blinders as well and your contextual blinders as well. What are maybe some of the other things that, that you've gained from reading the Christian classics that maybe are are more difficult to discover whenever you're reading more modern day books or literature. Yeah, well, I think a couple things. One, I would I would say I've referred to this already. Just their passion for God. Um, today's Christian has a passion for themselves, <laughs> their gifts, their ministry, their calling. And it's almost like they use God so that they could live this flourishing, overcoming, wonderful life. And the classics, no, it's not a passion for us or what we do. It really is a passion for God. And I miss that. Mm. I think another, I believe, sort of prophetic message is the whole call to surrender. Um, Today, so much Christian teaching is about overcoming your difficulties, finding this or finding that. And the classics recognize, because keep in mind, Caleb, most of them were written. They didn't even have aspirin, all right? You didn't have a sinus headache and drop Advil sinus to take care of it. You didn't even have an aspirin. I mean, they lived with a lot of pain and agony. Um, many of them would have children that died you know, well before they were at the age of 10. They'd often lose half their children. 
And, and so there, I think it was just necessity, the need to surrender to this life that we live in a fallen world and the way that eternal hope helps us face that. Um, and, and today I don't see us so focusing on surrendering to God as much as trying to use God so that we don't have to surrender to the difficult realities of life. That's good. There's so much there. One thing that I want to go back to what you were saying is, um, you know, we uh, we can have a tendency to have a passion for ourselves instead of a passion for God. How do you? How can you tell whether or not you have more passion for yourself versus for God? And how how do you balance that also between? Um, I don't know if it would be um, self confidence or confidence in oneself versus confidence in God. Uh, there's, I have two things. As I'm looking at you now, yeah. Um, are, are people just listening to us, or can they see? Yeah, us? They're, they're listening to us. us. Okay, right next to the monitor where I'm looking at you, I have two things that I've put up, uh, both stolen. <laughs> <laughs> One is from Bach. Um, he used to put JJ at the start of every empty page where he would write his music, mm. and it was Latin for basically "Jesus help me." Is it? And, and, and my approach is, is how I look at myself is wanting to look at every book I write, every blog post, every interview I do, every sermon I preach as Jesus helped me. But, but here's the key. Right below that is Isaiah 12, 4 that says this, make known his deeds among the people. Make them remember that his name is exalted. So the sermon I'm preaching this weekend where do I exalt Christ? How, how am I lifting up Christ? How am I pointing people to Christ? Not, is Gary a good communicator? Not, does Gary have something to say? I'm coming from, I hope the approach, Jesus helped me. I have nothing on my own to say. And then my focus is make, help them remember that his name is to be exalted, help people to remember his deeds. So my ministry isn't about my self-actualization. It's just the tool to help people think about Jesus a little bit more than they do. And if I could go to contemporary events, what really surprised me, the whole thing about Ravi Zacharias, because people are talking about it so much, mm-hmm. if he said this, I mean, it's, it's alleged that he would say this, that his sexual dalliances, I guess, because he said, I, I deserve this because I serve the Lord so well and so zealously and whatnot. And I'm like, you know, if you're serving the Lord, I don't think you get rewarded by abusing the Lord's yeah. daughters. <laughs> um, he might have been focusing on what he was doing, but this notion that you could serve the Lord and then go abuse his daughters, and that's okay. With, I, look, I don't care what anybody does for me. After they're doing something for me, they go abuse one of my daughters. I mean, it's like <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we're in a whole different conversation. And um I think we just have to be really careful about our motivations and attitude of dependence. And, and part of it comes from, I, I come out of nowhere. None of my parents, neither of my parents did anything like I do. I didn't go to any impressive schools. I don't have the pedigree. It's taken decades sort of to climb out to have anything like the platform I have now. So I'm not oozing with self-confidence. Um, I really believe if God pulled his anointing I've got nothing to say. I've got nothing to share. And so I think that makes me a little more dependent on him because I don't, I don't have that confidence in myself that I can just forget about God and life would be the same. I, I don't believe it would be. Talk, talk to me more about that because you were saying that like one of the things that, that you've struggled with is self-confidence. And so coming up, you know, and you're writing all of these books and you're like, they're, they're selling so many copies. What? Tell me what that was like for you. Well, it didn't at the start. Okay, okay let me give yeah. you an honest story. And this will encourage younger people that want to break out, whether it's as a writer, musician, film, whatever you're into. All I ever wanted to be was a writer. Hmm. There's nothing else anybody would pay me for. <laughs> All right? I'm not an administrator. I'm not very good with numbers. I'm ridiculously poor at anything mechanical like to listen to music. I'm not musically gifted. I, I wasn't a great athlete. I was a good athlete. I'm not a great athlete where I could make a living out of it. And so all of these things, I was just glad the writing put together. But I went through a brutal stretch of about eight years 
And I, I, I do this sometimes when talking to younger people, I have this string of 120 straight rejections that I got. And I've taped them together and they'll go all the way around most sanctuaries. I mean, a long way down the wall, depending on the size of the church with not a single yes. I mean, it was a, and they were brutal years and I've never, something that long shapes you. Okay. And then the first book come, comes out um, along with the first two articles that came out and it, it did okay. It sold about 9,000 or copies or probably 10,000 copies or so. Then the second book came out. It's called Sacred Pathways. My editor loved it. She told me, Gary, this is so fresh. The writing is good. It's, it's, it's a message that the church needs. And then she said, but I'm like, what? They just paid a ton of money for a Promise Keepers book. Promise Keepers was a huge ministry to men in the 90s. And she goes, all the marketing is going to go there. So really the book doesn't have a chance. And it ended up selling, I don't know, 7,500 copies or so, which a lot of people don't realize 90% of books sell 5,000 copies or less. So they weren't absolute failures, but nothing where you're going to get another contract. Now, when Sacred Marriage came out in 2000, Zondervan re-released Sacred Pathways. Okay, now Sacred Pathways has sold over 100,000 copies in its lifetime. Now you're talking about less than 1% of books that sell 100,000. But Caleb, it's the same book virtually. Yeah. I mean, I've updated it a little bit, but it's virtually the same book that just sold stuff because nobody knew who I was. I, I had no platform. And then the third book came out um, and that was actually The Glorious Pursuit that has since been released. And it, it did a little bit better. Maybe it got to 12,000, but nothing big. It wasn't really until my fourth book, Sacred Marriage, came out that things really opened up because Sacred Marriage has sold over a million copies. Mm-hmm. But even that took a couple years to take off. And so it's, it's not like I've ever had this one thing where, boom, everything broke open and everything was different overnight. It's been a long, arduous and painful process. And, and it's not fair. Like I said, one book in one situation sells... 7,000 copies. Yeah. People find out about the author. All of a sudden it sells over 100,000 copies. You can't, you can't make certain things happen. And I know a lot of great books go either unpublished or unread. A lot of good music isn't heard. A lot of good movies never have a chance. Um, that breaks you. It, it mm-hmm. humbles you. And I, I think that's where I you know, kind of get this uh, insecurity that I have. I know, I know it's not fair. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about how, like, take, take me back to before, like, and you were a little bit, but take me back to more towards before that success, before sacred marriage and everything to where, you know, you're, you're writing these books and, you know, you believe in the message of it. And yet you're not necessarily experiencing the success that you, that you might hope for. How did you deal with that? Well, my mother-in-law reminded me of a conversation that gave me chills. This was probably five years ago we had this talk. After my third book, The Glorious Pursuit, I remember saying, you know, it's costing me money to write these books because it's taking time, it's taking effort, and you're not making that much when that's all you're selling, right? And um, I remember saying, you know, maybe it's time for me to quit and really focus on getting a job that will support my family better because we were pretty poor. My wife was willing to work for, uh, she didn't work. She was raising the kids. So we were living on a really, really tight budget. I'm saying maybe I just need to to give it up. And I I remember one time in prayer, I felt challenged by God because I said, I'm not going to sell these books. They only sell 10,000 copies or so. And it's like the Lord was telling me, Gary, who are you to tell me you're only going to write books if you sell more than 10,000 copies? If I've called you to write books and sell 10, who are you to decide you're not going to? And okay, that's fair. That's legitimate. I get that. My fourth book was Sacred Marriage, which again has sold over a million copies. So I'm really glad I didn't stop, but I, I was getting discouraged. I mean, I can't, that's why I think it's different for me because I don't, um, I never was like, you write your first book and boom, you know, everything explodes and it's there. It was so so hard to get the first book published. And then there was another six years where you're just barely 
hanging on. And then sacred marriage comes out, but it still took a couple years for sacred marriage to take off. What happened was everybody kept telling me, oh, how come Focus on the Family doesn't do a program? This is so fresh. This is so good. It's so new. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? Knock on Jim Dobson's front door and say, hey, Dr. Dobson, you got it. I mean, it's not, it's not like I don't want to be on it. Yeah. Um, and and it, it was ignored. I think Family Life Today ran a show on it in its third year. They did five days and that's when it took off. And then Focus on the Family did one, I think the last next year. And then it just has sold year after year after year after year. And so, um, yeah, it was a long and laborious process. And I'm not going to say I handled it all that well. I was impatient and I was frustrated and I was heartbroken. Mm-hmm. Well, one might be some things because uh, people who are listening and even to myself to one degree or another, you know, find ourselves in that situation, find that selves or find ourselves in that situation, what advice either like, hey, this would be like something to keep in mind during this time, or hey, these are the mistakes that I made during this time. You can avoid doing these things. What would you say? Yeah. Well, one of the things that helped me is I always had a second project going so that if the first project fails, I've got something else that I'm working on. Secondly, what I've told published authors when they're first getting it published, I said, look at it as a Father's Day gift, all right? You're giving it to your heavenly father. You want it to build up his church that he holds precious. It's a gift to him. And it's like a Father's Day present. The dad may open it up and say, I mean, it's a tie that he'll only wear because you gave it to him. And then it goes in the back of the door. But you know what? That dad is still touched that you went out and got him that tie. And I said, so if your book becomes an act of worship, how many it sells isn't the first concern. The first concern is, I wrote this for you, Father. I, I want to give this to you. This is an act of worship. This is who you may be to be. However you want to use it, here it is. Um, and, and I've tried to do that with, with book after book, just because, like I've said, Caleb, it's not fair. I've, I've read some books that I thought, this book should sell a million copies, mm-hmm. and five people read it. And then these books that people say, oh, Gary, you got to read this. And everybody's talking. I read it. I'm like, seriously? <laughs> I mean, it's like, is, is there something I can take out of here? And so um, I, I, I don't think the market is fair. Um, and I, I think if somebody's being aspiring to be a writer, you've got to realize it will drive you crazy if you demand that things are fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to hear kind of what your, what your process is for from the time of like, hey, I, I think I have an idea for a book. What does that look like? All the way through, like, hey, um, I'm, I've, the book is written. Yeah, well, um, it, it's different. But in general, I'm usually taking notes for the next book while I'm writing the current book. Mm-hmm. Um, and now sometimes it's even more. I've been working on notes for another book for probably four or five years. The problem is it's not a marriage book and my marriage books have done so well. My publisher is more likely to want me to, well, okay, maybe we'll do that, but let's get this next marriage book in, in, in first. And so, um, I like, uh, at least a year, a little over a year to write it because what I'll do is I'll work on it, you know, maybe nine or 10 months and then I'll, send it off to a bunch of readers and don't look at it for six weeks because it takes about that long till it's really fresh. If you're familiar with your own writing, you don't, you don't read it really. It's, it's, it's your, your brain is, is too connected to it. So you don't see it. Well, that isn't really the best transition or this needs a story. If I get feedback from a lot of good sources, then I'm looking at it with fresh eyes and then I rewrite it and I'm rewriting it the whole time. And then I get it to my editor. Um, and, and the process has been refined such to where my former editor, the one before this one, finally told me, Gary, I don't know that you need an editor very much. But, but that's because I rewrote so much and had so much feedback before it got to him. Mm. It's not that I wrote a first draft that, I mean, it's yeah. never like that <laughs> with me. I, I think writing is rewriting. But here's the thing, Caleb. I love the process of writing. Mm-hmm. I like research. I like writing. I like rewriting. Um, I like incorporating. There really isn't an aspect of 
the actual writing process that I, I don't enjoy. You know, because there are people that really don't write their books, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'll, they'll preach yeah. sermons or whatnot. Somebody else does them. And and so people say, do you? And i like, well, I would never get that up. That's that's my favorite part of the whole process is the actual writing. Um, I, I don't do, I should say, I don't do the study guides for my DVDs mm-hmm. just because I found somebody that's better at it than me. Yeah. Kevin and Sherry Harney. And I just think it's a stronger project when they're doing it. It's a whole different kind of writing because you're answering questions and you have group exercises. But when it comes to my books, um, you know, that's, that's all on me. Yeah. What, what are some of the, what are some of the practices or some of the best practices for you, whether that be the writing or the rewriting or the, or even like the research, what are some of the best practices that help you with those things? Yeah. Well, I, I start out early in the morning um, and I like to get the gist of the book in and then I'll start reading a lot on the topic. Um, I like to read a lot, but I like to get my own thoughts going because I'm always afraid. Look, Mike, I just grew I was as an English major and then did some journalism stuff. And back then, plagiarism was the sin of all sins. And I'm a one on the Enneagram. I'm a rule follower. So I'm, <laughs> I, I really make sure that I'm footnoting and referencing everybody. That would be the biggest thing I would hate to ever hear as yeah. a challenge. In fact, that's why my editor, she said, Gary, you footnote far too much. You don't need it. But I'm just afraid of that accusation. So mm-hmm. I, I go through it too much. So, um, But I do like to read a lot to see what's out there. Because often it stimulates my own thought. Even if I disagree with them and I'm not going to quote them, it gives me a sense where um, it, it stimulates my own thinking where I'll twist it and turn it and take it in a different um, direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the notes piece as well. Whenever you're first, like I would love to hear, is that just like you, you writing down thoughts and everything or what does that look like? Yeah, it's just, it's just a word file. Um, mm-hmm. Scriptures that I think are relevant quotes from a book I've been reading, thoughts that I might have on a run or something that I think is particular that I'm sort of gathering together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and right now it's ridiculous. I mean, the book could be 1,200 pages if I'm not careful. <laughs> We've got all these great chapters I think it needs to have. And, um, and who knows if it ever even actually gets written, but yeah. um, we'll see. How do you know if you have a book or if it's just like, hey, this is a really great idea and it might be like a blog post or something? Well, it's different for me. And again, this is where life isn't always fair because I have a publisher where I'm contracted for several books at a time and they have a whole team and we'll go over ideas. Sometimes they've even um, tested the ideas. What what, what do you call it when you have the, um, a poll isn't the right word, but when they... They test it. They have these readers. They have, here's the idea. Here's the author. Yeah. Like this idea, that, would you read this or that? I, I forget the marketing term for it. Um, and, and so I, I get help that you're not going to get as an author who isn't published because the publisher knows we're going to publish another Gary Thomas book. Okay. Let's find one that really works, that the sales team is excited about selling, the editor is excited about working on. I mean, I think back to the days when I'm just trying to sell one book at a time and you work so hard to develop a query and some chapters and a table of contents. And it might be something where the sales team would know, you know what, we just did a book on that. There's no way we're doing that for the next three or four years. And, and you yeah. don't know that as an inspiring writer. Um, and that's, that's where it's tough. Yeah. One of the, one of the quotes uh, from your website that really stood out to me, and it's, I guess it, it's, it might be more of a tagline, is, you know, closer to Christ, closer to others. And it seems like right now, maybe it's just the time that we're living in, that uh, the opposite seems to be happening in our society a little bit of um, we aren't as close with other people maybe as um, maybe as we heard, as we were before, and we're becoming even more separated. I would just love to hear um, any thoughts on you of what is what's leading to that. Yeah. Well, I think it's predictable. Sadly, mm-hmm. it's predictable. As we drift from God, um, we drift from others. 
Mm. I, I tweeted out not too long ago that politics seems to me is the art of trying to make life work without God. And now we know the truth. It doesn't. Mm. We're trying to build a society that doesn't honor God as creator, that doesn't worship God. And it's just not working. There is no government program that could overcome the scourge of fatherlessness. When children are raised without fathers, there's, there's no, well, a, a check from the government is not going to overcome the absence of a father. The way that college campuses try to regulate sexual behavior, it, it, it's almost, I mean, it's, it's a minefield. I've heard moms saying, I don't want my son to go there because they can be accused and I don't want my daughters to go there because they can be preyed upon. And it's like, if we would go back to God saying, you know what, how about you wait till you get married? So many of these issues would be solved. If God is worshiped, racism ceased to exist. Racism is one of those offensive sins for a Christian because the only reason for different races is our creator God who created different races. If you worship the creator, you can't, by definition, be a racist. I mean, it, it makes no sense. And so it's like if, if we're worshiping God, um, most of the ills in our society that we see, the corollary, the, the air would be let out of the balloon. Yeah. Um, and it's because we've tried to figure out how do I make life work apart from God? So we think with rules and with marches and with slogans, we can do it. But none of those things change the human heart. When I look at a brother, Asian, Hispanic, black, whatever, and that's a brother in Christ that God designed, that God created. There's no slogan. I don't need to read a book. It's like worshiping God. This is, this is who God created. And it, it just makes life different. If I'm on, you know, I've been married for 36 years, so I haven't been a part of this for a long time. But if I'm dating a young woman, I'm like, you know what? Her earthly father isn't here, but her heavenly father is. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says, do not commit sexual immorality. In this instance, no one should take advantage of another. So I shouldn't try to take advantage of her for my own sexual pleasure. She's God's daughter. I'm worshiping God. How can I see God in prayer if I'm doing something that's <laughs> grieving him the way I'm treating his daughter? And, and, and so in all of these issues, I feel like it's because we've drifted from Christ that we've also drifted from others. I think it just goes back to worship. Mm-hmm. And kind of on the inverse, what is it about drawing closer to Christ and drawing closer to God that draws us closer to other people? Well, I, I think one of the things that marks Christ the most, and it's it, it's one of the virtues in the glorious pursuit, the virtue yeah. of love, is that Christ is so for us. We're told that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the virtue of love is, can I be that for everyone? Even people that might seem like my political enemies, even people I disagree with everything they say or do, not wanting them to be crushed, not wanting them to be humiliated, but wanting them to come to the light so they can be blessed by God, receive God's love, enjoy God for all eternity, and be a partner in Christ where they're encouraging each other and, and showing love. And so um, how, how do I exhibit that same love of Jesus when I get close. First John 4:19 says, We love because he first loved us. If I'm not receiving that love from God first, I can't show that love for others. And it's not just my enemies, it's it's my closest loved ones. It's it's my wife. I found out early on as a husband, the more I receive from God, the less I ask of my wife. Hmm. The less I receive from God, the more needy I become with my wife, the more needy I become with my kids. Why can't you appreciate me? Why can't you, why can't you do this? The more needy I become of my coworkers, the more needy I become as a preacher. Now I'm preaching not out of the love and fulfillment of God, but I want to say I matter. And so you better come back and say, oh, that was the best sermon ever. Or you're such a gifted person or whatnot. It's like, if I'm not going to God first, I'm putting others in his place. And so I'm using people, not loving people. And that's a spiritually perilous place to be. Mm -hmm. What What are some of the, I don't know if it would be practices or what are some of the things that 
that maybe you've put into your life or that you that you do that help you better receive God's love so that you don't need other people's love as much or become become that needy person that you were talking about? Yeah, well, uh, another book of mine is Sacred Pathways about how everybody has a different approach to connect with God. And for me, speak to me a lot. Um, I love to take walks through the woods and I don't know what it is when I'm outside surrounded by nature, by what God has made. It's just a place for me where I can receive from him in a way that's better than, than anywhere else. I think you cut out for a second. Are you there? Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm here. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Gotcha. No, okay. sorry. I. Uh, I just had a short answer for once, so I took you off guard. No, <laughs> that's on and on. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, one of the, one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about is um, I know that you write so much about spiritual growth, and you know you mentioned sacred pathways of kind of how we all have our own um, uh, unique way that God has designed us to connect with him. But have you seen any patterns of, of what, you know, I don't know if it generally works for other people as it pertains to spiritual growth? Well, you know, Jesus said, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah. So sacred pathways are nine different ways that people do. You have the intellectual, you have the caregiver, you have the enthusiast, you have the activist. They're all expressed a different way. But the four common things that has to be a part of everyone is your mind. How are you getting scripture into your life? The naturalists may have fewer scriptures and they may be reading the scriptures as they're walking through the woods or sitting by a river. The intellectual may be having their study books and their commentaries and their concordances. Um, the enthusiast might be in a group setting where they like to do the group Bible studies and they're talking with others. Some people might be listening to the Bible as they're driving to work. However it is, you've got to get the word into your life. Jesus said of his disciples praying to God, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Paul says we're transformed in Romans 12 too by the renewing of our minds. There's really no spiritual growth, I believe, apart from scripture. Um, he also says, love the Lord with all your, your heart. And I, I use that to refer to adoration. We all need to worship God. Again, the naturalist might prefer to worship God in the outdoors, the enthusiast, and uh, you know, with, with a bunch of other people, the sunset, maybe in a great cathedral. But all of us have to find a way to celebrate God. Soul is referring to communication. I, I'm not saying this is an exposition. I'm just saying it's a helpful metaphor. Mm-hmm. And so we're all got to pray to God. Again, we might pray with our eyes wide open. We might pray with our eyes closed. But there's got to be some point where we're talking to God and and listening to God speak back to us. And then strength, I just use as service, whether it's as an activist, whether it's as a caregiver, whether it's reaching out to the needs of others. Um, For a healthy Christian life to grow, you've got to be giving away what God is giving you. And so if you get those four things together, heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're, you're pretty close on your path to spiritual growth. Yeah. And kind of on the on the flip side of the question, have you seen any patterns of what like where people typically get tripped up on whenever it comes to spiritual growth or what are maybe what are some of the most difficult ways to connect with God or whenever it comes to spiritual growth? Yeah. Here here's where I feel like I'm swimming upstream. Yeah. Uh because most people will disagree with what I'm about to say. I can't tell you how many books I've read, how many sermons I hear, how many podcasts, blogs that I read, is we've got to stop trying harder. Christian mm-hmm. growth isn't about trying, yeah, every trying hard. Then you get into legalism and it's joy, and it just doesn't work. And I, Kayla, I read scriptures. I said, what are you talking about? First Peter um, 1, 5 says, make every effort to add to your faith. And then it lists, a number of the virtues and says, um, because if you have these virtues in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever does not have them 
has forgotten he's been cleansed from his past sins. There's no way you can understand, make every effort without talking about human cooperation. That word, every effort, you're, you're straining. And there are many passages where Paul talks about that too. And he says, I struggle with everything I have, working with his power, which works so powerfully within me. But I, this notion that somehow effort is legalism or works righteousness, I think is, is one of the most clever lies in the church today, because the best things in life are difficult. It's not easy to learn how to play an instrument, but I'm thankful for the people who practice so they can master instruments because I love to listen to music. Uh, losing weight isn't easy, but when a doctor comes to you and says, you, you got to get your cholesterol down, um, it's, it's a matter of health. If you expect it to be easy, you're, you're going to give up and it's not going to happen. But starting a business is isn't easy. Running a marathon isn't easy. There's so many things that we celebrate that are difficult. And yet when it comes to spiritual growth, for some reason, you're supposed to say, well, stop this message of telling me to try harder. I'm like, they're reading a different Bible than I am because I could point you to half a dozen scriptures that say we should try hard. And part of that comes, Caleb, from reading the Christian classics. Mm -hmm. They tried really Hard. And when I hear these preachers say, you know, too many Christians, they're just trying too hard. I want to say, show me one, <laughs> all right? Show me the one Christian who's trying too hard. Because when I got here to Houston and got to know some of the groups, because now I'm not just a writer, I'm a pastor on a church. Yeah. And, and, and Houston has an incredible ministry called Castimonia. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts about Houston. It's a group. It's, it, it's sort of a 12-step group for men trying to come out of sexual addiction. And, and Caleb, these guys, the, the gold standard, and this is the same for alcoholism or, or other 12-step groups, the goal is 90 meetings in 90 days mm. to retrain your mind. They're trying to go to literally, now you could go two a day. If you're having a really bad day, you might go two a day, but that's a lot of meetings. They're reading books. They're listening to podcasts. They're making phone calls with their accountability partners. And I'm seeing these men set free from these sins that have enslaved them before. But to call that easy, to tell them it's not a lot of work. Yeah, it, it makes work. me. And I just, I just think it's, it's a lie to suggest that somehow effort goes against the whole notion of faith and grace. I love Dallas Willard's phrase, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Hmm. And a lot of people hated that line from him. And I think Willard was brilliant in stating it. Yeah, it, it makes me think so much of uh, like lifting weights and everything because it's like- Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Because it's like, well, you have to, it's like building your spiritual muscles and everything. Yeah. I, uh, I said, I thought yeah. it was first Peter one. I think it's first Peter two, five through nine that I was quoting. People were wondering. Uh, are there, are there any other things about uh, spiritual growth that you feel like, Hey, this, like, like what you were saying with the, with the try harder piece that you feel like, man, we, we need to talk about this more or. Uh, this gets overblown and is talked about way too much. Well, I, I think I just go back to the difference when I read the classics and when I read contemporary books that we're obsessed with salvation mm. and the classics were obsessed with holiness. And I think Paul and James and Peter and John were far more concerned with holiness. Um, former mentor of mine, Dr. Gordon Fee, a great New Testament scholar, I was his teaching assistant one year, said in the first century, nobody asked each other, are you saved? Mm -hmm. The question was, do you have the spirit? Now, I don't think those two questions were against each other, but here's the difference. The heaven. So you talk about the past and the future. Do you have the spirit is entirely focused on the presence. Are you surrendering to God? Is God growing you? Are, are you dying to the things that keep you from God? 
And I just think that's a much healthier approach for us in the here and now just to say, well, yeah, 50 years ago, I prayed this prayer. 50 years from now, I'm going to be in heaven. And that's all that Christianity is. Uh, And I think that's why we have a lot of immaturity in the faith that we have today. That's really good. Uh, I would love for you just to talk more about the importance of holiness and what what do we what do we gain by choosing to pursue holiness or I've, I I would even say maybe Christ likeness um, and what do we miss out by not pursuing it? One of the underlying themes, the repetitive themes I keep coming back to with the glorious pursuit is getting your life back. Hmm. For me, practicing the virtues, it's not legalism. It's setting me free. Everything that is opposed to virtue are things that I regret, that bring shame, that I wish wouldn't have happened. Practicing the virtues isn't about getting into heaven. It's about making my wife's life not feel like hell. (laughs) Because when I don't act according to virtues, it's those closest to me that pay the highest price. Um, and, And so it's, what I loved is when John Wesley and people are going to, man, people are going to scream at this, but John Wesley's book on Christian perfectionism often gets panned. There's some brilliant stuff in there. Now I think perfection was a poor choice of words because he spent his life trying to define it. And the way he defines it, it's not really the way we use it. And Mm -hmm. so there became an argument over the word instead of the concept behind it. But here's how Wesley explained it one time, and I think it was a brilliant way. He goes, when I seek Christian perfection, what it means is I don't want greed to determine my relationship with money. I don't want lust to determine my relationship with women. I don't want impatience to determine my relationship with fellow sinners. And he just goes on and says, I'm not going to let the worst parts of me direct how I do it. I want to respond with patience. I want to respond with chastity. I want to respond with humility. I want to respond with love. And and he then asks, what healthy Christian doesn't feel that way? And he goes, and if if we could have some holiness, why not have it all? Do I want to let there be a little bit of lust in my life? So I, I only lust after every 10th woman? <laughs> Do I want there to be a little bit of greed in my life? So I only close my heart off, you know, one, one day a week or something. That, and and he, he just said, look, if, if a sin is bad, it's always bad. Why are we so willing to tolerate it when God is offering to heal us? Now, I, I wouldn't fall into Wesley's trap and try to speak of perfectionism, because I think it really is more about progress than perfection. In fact, that's what Peter says in 1 Timothy 2. If you have these qualities in increasing measure, which assumes nobody corners the market on humility and the virtues, but that you're growing. But I, I have a soft spot for Wesley because he was one that spoke up and said, I don't get why you're so comfortable with just allowing sin in your life. The whole point of practicing the virtues that the glorious pursuit represents is that spiritual growth doesn't happen by accident. Just as bodybuilders can decide, I want to build my biceps, my triceps, my shoulders, my legs, my back, and there are certain weights they lift and there are certain exercises they do. If they don't do those exercises, their muscles don't grow. The ancients, and I believe scripture, looks at the virtues of Christ, characteristics of Christ, Practicing those virtues is spiritual soul building. Same thing as physical bodybuilding. This is spiritual soul building where you can become more patient. You can become more humble. You can become gentler. You can become more courageous. We have God's spirit to help us. We have Jesus's example to guide us. And we have the word to direct us. Um, I I just think it's something we should take a little more seriously. uh, two virtues that you write about in the glorious pursuit really stood out to me, and I would just love um, just a couple of your thoughts on them. And you've you've mentioned one several times throughout this. One would be surrender, and then the other one would be um, detachment. Can you just talk about the importance of of yeah. those two virtues? The importance of surrender for today is if I, when I talk to most Christians, they're torn apart by others' expectations. My parents want this of me. My spouse wants that. My kids expect this. My friends want this. My boss wants that. 
And we come to realize as an adult, it's impossible to please everybody. We're going to have to just, and that's where a lot, I think particularly younger people just get so frustrated because they realize if I please this person, I make this person angry. If I please that person, I make this person angry. Surrender calls us to a new simplicity that we're called to surrender to one. And, and, and Jesus said, I came down for the father to do the will of him who sent me. So everything Jesus did, if it was a miracle, if it was choosing the disciples, if it was a teaching, if it was going to the cross, he was doing it to please his heavenly father, which is why many times in his life, he walked away from persecution and said, no, you don't get to kill me yet. I'm not done. When it was his father's will that he laid down his life, okay, here I am. You, you can have me. So Jesus lived with this incredible harmony and peace because he was willing to let people hate him. He was willing to let people threaten him. His closest followers, you think of uh, Mary and Martha when Jesus let Lazarus die. I mean, he loved these women and they were furious with them. And Jesus like, you know what? It's still better for them that they see Lazarus raised from the dead than that they see me heal Lazarus before he dies. This is what God's want. God wants. And so Jesus, Jesus was good with that. And, and I think especially today, when you talk to people in their 20s and 30s, the thought that anybody thinks ill of them tears them apart. They can't sleep. They got to make things right. Well, if you look at the life of Jesus, uh, he was misunderstood. He was made an object of suspicion. People accused him. Uh, if we want to be faithful followers of Christ, we have to learn the virtue of surrendering to God because we're going to have to disappoint people to serve God. And then would you mind just briefly touching on detachment yeah. as well? Uh, detachment is a virtue that isn't thought of that much. But where I found it so helpful is that we often focus, at least in the tradition I grew up in, you focus on how you handle temptation. There are even books. When you're tempted, this is what you do and how you handle it. Detachment is assaulting temptation before it happens. It's sort of like pulling the plug. How do you detach your heart from the things that set you up for temptation? Um, and so instead of focusing on the battle when it comes, it's how do you make sure the battle never arrives? So it, it's this sense of heart work. Uh, pulling yourself away because the, the reality is for most of us, Caleb, we're going to do what we want to do. We have a certain amount of willpower, but studies have shown, neuroscientists have studied this, you use up your willpower at the end of the day. That's why a lot of people, if eating is their thing, if drinking is their thing, if porn is their thing, it's late at night that they're weakest often. Because you've said no, 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 no. Well, you only have so many no's. Detachment, Puritans taught this a lot, is about going back and, and pulling out the desire, recognizing that it's the desire that will ultimately lead you to sin. And then one final thing that I want to ask you is what's, uh, what's something that you've learned in the you know the past year or two, or it could be a, a couple of things that just keeps you know coming up for you, or that if you if you could give advice to someone on something that you've learned in the last couple of years, what, what would you say? Well, I, I would say this last year in particular, and this is very personal, so I don't know yeah. how many people it would help. Um, but just the role that anxiety has played in my life. Hmm. I was raised by a very anxious mom. And it was just a number of events that happened in my own life that helped me see how anxious I am in so many areas. I wake up with anxiety every day because I usually only sleep uh, four or five hours. You know, a good, if it's six and a half, I'm elated. Mm -hmm. And every time I go to a doctor, how long are you sleeping? I'm saying, well, five or six hours. I go, you know what? We got to get you sleep in seven hours. I wish, I wish, I wish. And so I'm anxious because I look at the clock and it's 4.15 and I'm like, oh man, it's only been five and a half hours, but I know I'm not going to go back to sleep because I'm flooding my brain with anxiety. So I'm anxious at the very start, but I can't make myself sleep longer. And then I'm anxious about things that often don't happen. 
And so I'm just trying to learn to walk in, in the peace of God that um, I've been reading through the book of Isaiah and I wrote down every time God is referred to as almighty. Okay, it's dozens of times. Not, I mean, it's it's dozens of times. I realized before every promise, it's appropriate to put the Almighty God. The Almighty God says, "I will never leave you nor forsake you." Uh, the Almighty God says, "I will be your redeemer, your healer." I mean, it's we don't have just an advocate. We have an Almighty advocate. And just understanding who God is. I've been going through the scriptures, writing down all scriptures, own revelations, describing God. And it's it's been life-changing to see how glorious God is, how wonderful God is, uh, just how blessed we are to be his people. And I'm trying to use that to fight back my anxiety because when you're an anxious person, you're anxious about being anxious and that doesn't really help. <laughs> and so I'm just trying to find the positive. Can I just rest in who God is and hope that that detaches me from anxiety and that I can be a much healthier, less neurotic, obsessive, compulsive person a year from now? Hmm. Well, Gary, I know that people are going to want to pick up uh, the glorious pursuit and continue to, you know, get, it's not just the glorious pursuit. You have so many books. Uh, where's the best place for people to go to? find out and learn more from you. Yeah, it would be my website, which is garythomas.com. They can remember my name, Gary Thomas. They've got it. Just put a .com on the end and you can see any number of books there that you can look up. And uh, there's some excerpts. I've got two blogs. One blog is Closer to Christ. It's about spiritual formation. The other blog is Closer to Others and it tends to be about marriage, singleness. Not very much on parenting. I really focus more on the relationships. Um, whether for singles or, or marrieds. And so they can look up those as well. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Caleb. One of the things that really made me think coming out of that conversation with Gary was just the idea and the importance of training that he talked about. And realizing that we don't become better people. We don't experience growth. We don't become more healthier versions of ourselves by accident. That it's not something that, well, hey, I just decide to do. And and I think the other part of it is as I'm literally as I'm talking about this out, I'm thinking about it and tying it back to, you know, what I mentioned earlier with uh with the episode with Brene that she did with Simon Sinek, is that it doesn't happen by accident either. That growth and that training doesn't happen by accident. It requires intentionality because without that, we will just focus on the things that that help us, you know, grow the things that we want. But are we growing the right things? Are we becoming the person that we want? And I think that requires intentionality. That requires the training of it. And it's not something that is easy. It takes a ton of time and it's a process. And I think the other thing that falls into it is making sure that we aren't pursuing this this growth, this this desire um, for us to become healthier. That we're not pursuing it out of a desire. Especially, this is true for uh, for followers of Jesus. That we aren't pursuing this out of a desire to earn the love of God, but we're learning it is that we're doing it as a result of God's love for us. And that we know that becoming other people or becoming healthier people helps us love other people better and helps us become the healthiest version of ourself. And so that's just one of the things that I'm thinking about for my conversation with Gary. If uh, For whatever stood out from you from this conversation, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to make sure that happens is, by, uh, is through Instagram. You can just go ahead and reach out to me. Uh, my handle at Caleb J. Mason would love to hear from you. Or if you have something that you would love to learn about on the podcast or learn from, uh, or a certain person or cer- certain topic that you would like us to talk about on the podcast, just go ahead and reach out to me through there as well. And so, uh, I, uh, man, this, this, this episode and the last episode, I almost uh, ended the podcast without saying a real quick thank you to Garrett. Oler, who does the editing for this podcast, and Sam Massey, who does the music for this podcast, cannot make this 
podcast happen without either of you. Um, well, I guess I could. It would just not be as good as it is. And so thank you both so much for that. And thank you for listening to the end of the podcast. And so thanks so much for listening. And my name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.